you will join me in Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, we continue in our journey through the gospel of Luke. This morning's sermon is entitled, Faith's Question. And our key words for our worshipers and training are unbelief, John, and faith. William Cooper, and that's spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's pronounced Cooper. William Cooper is one of the most well-known poets and hymn writers of the 18th century. You may or may not recognize his name, but most likely you recognize the title of some of his hymns. Songs like, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, or Oh for a Closer Walk with God. And God moves in mysterious ways. Cooper expressed great truths of the Christian faith in ways that very few have ever been able to do. With such eloquence and and beauty. And unlike much of what our 21st century ears have been accustomed to, Cooper had a way of penetrating the heart with a sound theology of God's word through poetry and hymns. Now, Cooper was a contemporary to John Wesley and George Whitfield, who were in America at the time, and he was most profoundly shaped by his spiritual mentor, who was John Newton, who penned the great hymn, Amazing Grace. Uh, Cooper was known throughout the world, even recognizing glowing reviews for all of his work from non-believers like Benjamin Franklin. But while he was extremely gifted, he was known internationally, He wasn't a man of travel. He wasn't a man of adventure or politics or public engagement. William Cooper was a, he was a recluse. He spent virtually all of his adult life in the rural English countryside. And throughout his adult life, beginning around the age of 21, Cooper had a severe battle with what they would have called melancholy. We call it depression. He had episodes so severe that he would lay in his bed and just stare out the window for weeks at a time. In 1784, he wrote a letter to John Newton, and it included the following section. Loaded as my life is with despair, I have no such comfort as would result from a supposed probability of better things to come were it once ended. You will tell me that the, this cold gloom will be succeeded by a cheerful spring and endeavor to encourage me to hope for a spiritual change resembling it. But it will be a lost labor. Nature revives again, but a soul once slain lives no more. My friends, I know, expect that I shall see yet again. They think it necessary to the existence of divine truth that he who once had possession of it should never finally lose it. I admit the solidity of this reasoning in every case but my own. And why not in my own? I forestall the answer. God's ways are mysterious, and he giveth no account of his matters. An answer that would serve my purpose as well as theirs that use it. There is a mystery in my destruction, and in time it shall be explained. 
Notice that he affirms the great truth of the doctrine of the perseverance of God's saints. Namely, that those who God saves, he keeps until the end. He adopts us. We remain his children. God keeps us faithful until the end. Uh, Cooper clearly identifies that as true. He doesn't question his own conversion. He plainly sees that God had once saved him. But what he disputes is that the general truth of perseverance applies to him. He is, in his own mind, the lone exception in the universe. He is reprobate, though he was once elect. Don't ask why, he said. God gives no account. Now, this is the bleakest possible way of talking. There is no reasoning with such a mentality. I know it's true, I know it's right, but it doesn't apply to me. If you take the time to look at the life and the work of William Cooper, you're left with an abundance of clear evidence that he was a Christian, that he was loved, he was helped by God in many ways, and yet he was devastatingly tortured in his condition. Darkness, despair, and feelings of utter uselessness, and most prominently, he was plagued with doubt. Doubt that God still loved him. Doubt that he was still one of God's people. Doubt that he would ever see heaven. Cooper's is a very sad story up until the very end of his life. I wonder this morning if you ever find yourself in the place of a William Cooper. Certainly, I think I know all of you well enough to know that what he experienced is far worse than what any of us have endured, and I thank God for us in that mercy. But we all, to varying degrees, have the pains of despair and doubt from time to time, don't we? We consider our own sin and the devastating effects in our own lives and the lives of those around us, and we wonder, can God really love me? Am I really a Christian? Sometimes our doubts come in the midst of painful and difficult circumstances. When we endure seasons of suffering and turmoil, when nothing around us seems to be going right. Other times, perhaps, a skilled questioner places something before us about Christianity that we are stumped on, and it it causes us to ask questions. What if they're right? What if this whole thing is really a lie? There are several examples in the Bible of those who had doubt for various reasons and expressed it. In fact, the most prominent examples of doubt in the Bible are probably those we wouldn't expect at all. Peter expressed doubt in the storm. Thomas expressed doubt of the resurrection. Time and time again, we read of the despair and the doubt of David in the Psalms. And this morning, we are going to look at the doubt of the one we might least expect in all of the scriptures. The doubt of John the Baptist. So let's read together, beginning in verse 18 of Luke chapter 7. The disciples of John reported all of these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, 
sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, it's important for us to remember John's condition up to this point. Remember, we last saw him in chapter 3 of Luke. He was preaching repentance. He was preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah. Remember, it was foretold to his father, Zechariah, by the angel Gabriel, that this would be John's task. He would be the forerunner in Jesus's ministry, preaching repentance, calling the people to true obedience of heart. And thousands of people heard the words of John and were baptized by John, And then, of course, we saw Jesus arrive on the scene to be baptized by John himself. And remember, at Jesus' baptism, as he was being raised up from the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. And from that point forward, John the Baptist said, I must decrease that Jesus might increase. Now, remember in Luke three nineteen and 20, there's a quick statement from Luke that lets us know what happened to John shortly after Jesus' baptism. Luke wrote this, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John, in prison. Now we read in the other gospels that John called Herod the Tetrarch a dog for his ungodliness and his sin. Specifically, he was referring to John's relationship to Herodias. Now, let me give us a quick reminder of this, and we'll walk through how wicked it is. We went through this in Luke 3, but I just want us to remember how right John was about Herod the dog. Now, this Herod is Herod Antipas. He had three brothers, <coughs> Aristobulus, Philip, and Archelaus. Now, Herod's brother, Aristobulus, had a daughter named Herodias. Herodias was betrothed by her grandfather, Herod the Great, to her uncle, Philip. So Philip married his niece, Well, Herod Antipas, also Herodias' uncle, met Herodias while visiting the family and fell in love with her and she with him. So Herod convinced Herodias to divorce his brother, Philip, and Herod divorced his wife, and then Herod and Herodias got married. And to make it all even more convoluted, Later on, Herod was seduced by the dancing of Herodias' daughter from Philip, which would have been his stepdaughter at the time, and he offered her anything she wanted, and at the prompting of her mother, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and that's what she got. I have yet to see that story turned into a Sunday school lesson for children. (laughs) Herod was a dog. John was right. 
but for calling him a dog and speaking the truth with regards to his condition and his sinfulness, John finds himself in prison waiting to be beheaded at the bequest of a teenage girl. And things are not looking good for him. And I have to imagine John <coughs> excuse me, is hearing reports of the work of Jesus, and he's becoming more and more perplexed because what he prophesied was twofold. But what he's hearing about Jesus is only half of the equation. Remember, John's prophecy was a declaration that the Holy Spirit would be upon Jesus, that he would do many great signs and wonders, which was absolutely consistent with what he was hearing about Jesus. But remember, he also prophesied judgment, that Jesus would burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But there weren't any reports of that coming back to John. Nothing of that sort was happening. The Romans were still in control. The religious establishment was still oppressive and self-righteous as ever. And John was sitting in a dungeon with what appeared to be very little hope of ever being released. It seems quite evident, given the circumstances, that John was disappointed. He was confused. And we read from his question that he was experiencing some serious doubt. And so the messenger was sent to ask Jesus, Are you the one who has come, or shall we look for another? Now, remember who we're talking about here with John the Baptist. His birth was foretold by an angel. His mother was barren and old. He was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. He heard the voice from heaven speaking over Jesus. He saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove at Jesus' baptism. And yet here he was with doubt. Questions. Is this Jesus really the Messiah? You see, John was dealing with the same question that every person that has ever lived must level with. What am I to do with this Jesus? Is he who he says he is, or shall I look elsewhere? Perhaps some of you are asking that question even now. You've heard about Jesus. You have some kind of opinion about Jesus. But was he just some kind of miraculous healer? Was he some great moral teacher? Or is he truly God in the flesh? These are legitimate questions. They have answers, as we will see in Jesus' response to John. Look again at verse 21. In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, if you don't know this story, but you know about John the Baptist, you might assume that Jesus would have responded in a very different way than he actually did. I just love what Jesus does here, though. First, I, <clears throat> I just kind of imagine Jesus hearing the question from the messengers, and he stands there for a moment in silence. He kind of 
rolls up his sleeves, and then he walks right in the middle of town at sort of a quick pace, and he just starts laying hands on people left and right as he walks down the road, healing everything and everyone in sight while the messengers of John follow behind, watching in complete amazement. And then Jesus gets to the end of the road, wipes the sweat from his brow, rolls his sleeves back down and says, go tell John what you've just seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. I mean, it's, it's like Jesus thought for a second, how might I show John? Okay, I'll fulfill some prophecy right now. And then he just got after it and he did it. When Jesus told the messengers what to say to John, he's alluding to at least four separate texts in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 29:19. Excuse me, 26:19, 29:18, and 61:1, which he also quoted back in chapter 4 when he was preaching in his hometown. So Jesus responds to the doubt that came from John with evidence, with the truth. He proved the physical evidence of actually healing and casting out demons, and he provided the scriptural evidence in his words by quoting Isaiah, who prophesied that Jesus would do the very thing the messengers just observed him doing. So think about John again for a moment and consider yourself. Perhaps you're doing what you assume you're supposed to be doing according to God's commands. You're depending upon God through the means of grace. You're striving in obedience. And yet you find yourself in poor circumstances. I think it's natural for Christians at some point to say, you know, this isn't exactly working out the way that I expected. Is it possible that I'm wrong about Jesus. Maybe I'm, I'm not one of his children. Maybe this thing about the perseverance of the saints is true for other Christians, but not for me. Maybe God has just forsaken me. Most of us probably won't admit it, but I know that there are some of you sitting here right now thinking back over the last week, And saying, you know, I've had a really lousy week spiritually. What's going on? What's wrong with my heart? Maybe God's just fed up with me and he's leaving me to figure it all out. Our hearts are filled with doubt. Doubt comes to us for at least two different reasons. One reason for doubt is the crippling effects of sin that keep us from seeing rightly. We feel the weight of our guilt and our sin as a result of our rebellion against the law of God. But we are blinded from seeing the power of the gospel to restore our communion with God. So instead of clinging to the promises of the gospel... That yes, we will sin, sometimes in very grievous ways, but by the grace of God, if our faith rests in Christ alone, we are set free from the bondage of that sin, which has been paid for us 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ through his perfect law-keeping life and sacrificial atonement-granting death. Instead of preaching that to ourselves, we dwell on our sin and we begin to doubt. We begin to question. Secondly, our doubts often come because of an incomplete knowledge of Scripture. We doubt because we don't have enough of the story to understand what God has promised or how God has shown us how he works. So, for example, there are many Christians who have been deceived by false teaching that says that they're either not faithful enough or have not received the Holy Spirit at all because they don't do something like speaking in tongues or they have a physical ailment that won't go away even though they've prayed and had others lay hands on them. They went to see the local apostle and on and on. When in reality, if they understood their Bibles and had more a more thorough understanding of the Scriptures and how God works... They would understand that their assurance of salvation doesn't lay in being able to speak in tongues because it ceased when the apostles died. Their healing doesn't come through visiting an apostle and having him lay hands on them because there were only 12 apostles and they were alive in the first century and they're not having healing services in the 21st century at a storefront downtown. So while someone may be a genuine Christian who God has redeemed, their lack of an understanding of the scriptures and a reliance upon things that God has not promised, and in fact may have even ceased altogether, has left them with overwhelming doubt and a complete lack of assurance. And this can play out in a hundred different ways. In fact, I think it's safe to say that the majority of our doubt stems from an incomplete knowledge of scripture. You see, John didn't understand his own prophecy in many ways, just like most of the prophets. His knowledge was incomplete. He expected Jesus' judgment to be instant. And like nearly everyone else at the time, the assumption was that the kingdom of the Messiah would be earthly and it would be a replacement of the Roman rule that was over them. But here's what's so wonderful about Jesus' response to John. He gives proof. He gives empirical, physical proof, and he gives scriptural proof. And he doesn't say, and be sure to tell John that I'm disappointed in his lack of faith. He should know better. Instead, Jesus answers John's doubts. He sets them at ease And then he replies, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is alluding to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. And the sense of what he's saying is, John, you and anyone else like you will be blessed as you persevere because you do not fall away on account of your disappointment with the way in which I am doing my work. And so John remains steadfast until the end. You know, I think most of us probably assume that doubt of any kind is incompatible with Christian faith. 
The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones responded to such an idea in a fantastic book that I recommend to all of you called Spiritual Depression. He wrote, Doubts are not incompatible with faith. Some people seem to think that once you become a Christian, you should never be assailed by doubts. But that is not so. Peter still had faith as he panicked in the storm in Matthew 14. His faith was not gone, but because it was weak, doubt mastered him and overwhelmed him, and he was shaken. Doubts will attack us, but that does not mean that we are to allow them to master us. No question about it, we will have doubts. And so we need to follow the lead of John the Baptist here. Be honest. Get it off your chest. Get it out on the table. Ask the Lord to help you find answers. Now that doesn't mean he's going to show you the answer you want or in the way you want him to. But in time, when we ask God for wisdom to know what's right and true concerning the things that we truly doubt, it will be shown to us and by God's grace our faith will grow and our assurance will be strengthened and a reminder will be given to us, God is far greater than me and there is nothing too difficult, there is nothing too perplexing for me to bring to him. And all of our answers will be according to God's word which has withheld the weight of doubt and skepticism throughout all of time. So fear not, you're not going to break the Bible. Ask God to show you answers. Don't just sit idly in doubt. God is a friend to the honest doubter because expressing our doubts shows growth. It strengthens our relationship with God because it forces us to be more diligent in seeking to know his word and in turn to know him. A true friend doesn't chide or turn away when we ask questions. He answers them honestly. And the indication of our trust in him is, as Jesus says in verse 23, that we're not offended by him. In other words, that we not depart or fall away from the truth on account of our doubts, but rather we remain steadfastly persevering as we discover more and more of the majesty and grandeur of our great God. Let's keep reading verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. 
But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So immediately following Jesus' response to the messengers, Jesus puts to rest any notion that John was a faithless man or that his doubt was any reason for Jesus to be disappointed in him or to consider him lesser than he truly was. Jesus tells the people that John is a man of conviction and a man of courage. His doubts didn't show him to be soft and flimsy. It showed, it to, showed him to be the man that he truly was, willing to ask. Instead of sitting on his doubt, instead of allowing it to master him, he mastered his doubt, and he went straight to the source. He asked the question, and he was rewarded with an answer. And so Jesus reaffirms this truth of who John is as a man, who John was as a prophet. John didn't live his life in the fear of man. He didn't hide behind opulence. He was an all-around wonderful, godly man. Indeed, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. What an incredible statement. From Joseph to Moses to Abraham to Joshua to David to Daniel, all of the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, Malachi, you name him, and Jesus says that John was a greater man. Other than Jesus himself, there's never been a greater man than John the Baptist. And yet Jesus adds another qualifying statement there. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This certainly doesn't diminish John's greatness. But the kingdom must be superior to the announcement of the kingdom. Therefore, the people of the kingdom must be superior to its announcer. So while John was certainly a member of the kingdom of God, he did not have the full benefit of the complete divine revelation of God as we do. Think about that for a moment. You and I possess the complete word of God. God has spoken. God has given to us all that he has determined for his people to know about him and his work throughout redemptive history. Therefore, we are in a greater place of privilege than even the greatest man to have ever been born like us. You and I have a greater privilege than the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. It's a wonderful privilege that we must not take for granted. For to whom much is given, much is required. Brothers and sisters, more than John the Baptist who heard the voice of God from heaven, we have the assurance of his promises because we have his complete and final word. We're not left to guess. We're not left to wonder. He has spoken. We are the blessed recipients. Now notice in verses 29 and 30 that Luke records the opposing responses of the people as they heard the words of Jesus. 
the commoners, the tax collectors and outcasts agreed with Jesus about his and John's ministries. They declared God just. Literally, they justified God. In other words, they, they pronounced that God was a just God. On the other hand, the religious leaders who knew all the ins and outs of the law, they could recite the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. They rejected what he had said. They acknowledged that maybe this applies to others, but it surely was not applicable to them. You see, the baptism of John had become a sort of spiritual divide throughout Israel. It required repentance and confession, and many people were convicted by John's preaching and did just that. They repented of their sins and they were baptized that they might flee the coming wrath of God. But the Pharisees and the lawyers who prided themselves on their self-righteousness and their supposed keeping of the law were sure that if they had any shortcomings at all, that they would be overlooked by God and they would be judged as inconsequential. They were insignificant. Clearly, they did not understand the seriousness of sin. Clearly, they had become too familiar with their own self-righteousness that they could not see the true righteousness that God requires, namely a perfect righteousness. They had a ritualistic familiarity with the things of God, but never truly experienced genuine communion with God. C.S. Lewis once wrote to a friend, None are so unholy as those whose hands are cauterized with holy things. Sacred things may become profane by becoming matters of the job. I've always been glad myself that theology is not the thing I earn my living by. You know, we are in grave danger. If the sermons we hear are really just for everyone else, If we have become so familiar with certain passages of the scriptures that we suppose there's no need for us to hear from them or to read them again. If there are certain areas of the Christian life where we say, I no longer need to explore that area. I no longer need to consider these things. I know what there is to know. May it never be that when we hear the great words of the gospel and the call to repentance, that we assume it to be a call only to those who are outside faith in Jesus Christ. We must not grow mindless in our listening to God's word and consideration of how it applies to our own hearts, lest we become idle like the Pharisees and the lawyers. Jesus goes on to describe the terrible blindness of the unbelief expressed by the Pharisees and lawyers, beginning in verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
Unlike John the Baptist, who expressed doubt and sought answers, the Pharisees and lawyers were in deep unbelief. Now, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief, and the difference is profound. Jesus never failed to distinguish between the two. Doubt is saying, in this time, I can't believe. Unbelief is saying, I won't believe. Doubt is honest. Unbelief is obstinance. Doubt is seeking to find light. Unbelief is contentedness with the darkness. Loving the darkness instead of the light. This is what Jesus attacked unsparingly throughout his ministry over and over again. But for the questions of men like John the Baptist and Peter and Thomas and men like Philip and Nicodemus and the many others who sought to hear the truth in the midst of their doubts, Jesus was generous and very patient with them. When Thomas approached Jesus, having previously doubted his resurrection, surely he stood before Jesus waiting for some scathing words, some rebuke. But that never came. Jesus instead gave him evidence, and he loved Thomas. He answered his doubts. But the Pharisees and lawyers, on the other hand, there was no pleasing them. They complained that John did not dance, and then they complained that Jesus would not weep. They demonized John for being a locust-eating teetotaler in the woods, and they scandalized Jesus for enjoying sumptuous feasts and good wine with friends. And so they concluded John was deranged and confused. Jesus was an unruly sinner and an apostate. They simply refused to believe And they never actually sought to consider the evidence that was before them. And sadly, the spirit of the Pharisees lives on, doesn't it? Without considering why things are the way they are, opinions fly and charges are leveled because some will seek to find fault no matter what. You're too serious, lighten up. Or you're too frivolous, grow up. One sermon is too doctrinal and the next one is a waste of everyone's time. The music is too lifeless and dull or it's way too much. It's overpowering and irreverent. Churches are either emotional and gushy or too condemning with hellfire and brimstone. And while all of these things may be true of any Christian, any pastor or any church, ultimately most people with such critical spirits want God to dance to their tune because they've figured out the perfect formula and their hearts feel no sin. But it is the grace of God to feel our sin, to know our need of grace, confessing our sin to God and repenting. Criticisms may be appropriate and necessary at times, But to always seek fault and never seek to find anything that is worthy of praise is the spirit of the Pharisees who were locked in the terrible spirit of unbelief. But while Jesus offers this dire analysis of the spiritual condition of such men, he offers words of rejoicing in verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. 
The divine wisdom that Jesus sent to John has been proven in the experience of those who are its recipients. In other words, brothers and sisters, the wisdom of God is proven in my life and your life as we experience real forgiveness from real guilt. And the life of Christ within each one of us animates all of our waking moments in life and our interaction with the word of God testifies that it is divine. The wisdom of Jesus is proven in our lives when we express our doubts, when we express our fears, and what we don't understand when our circumstances aren't working out the way we expected. And yet we find rest in the sovereignty and providence of God, knowing that even though nothing seems to be going the way that we expected, and I'm having some questions right now, and in the end, I know that I know that I know that God is up to something that's going to turn out for the greatest good. That doesn't mean I'm going to die rich or healthy or that I'm, going, that I'm not going to suffer or that I won't experience really dark seasons in my life like William Cooper. God doesn't promise that. But it does mean in the end that God's going to take William Cooper's and all their doubts and all their suffering and all of their pain in the dark nights of their souls and in their honest hours, he's going to turn words to songs that Christians will be singing with tears in their eyes 200 years later because it speaks directly to the world they're living in right now. I assume it's probably a little odd to those who are in unbelief when Christians stand together and sing five songs every Sunday morning. But they can't possibly understand what's going on in our hearts when we sing things. Like a song we're going to sing in a moment. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Uh, the beautiful truths of Scripture penned by a man who was so wrecked with doubts. And I assume some of you are experiencing great doubt right now. Perhaps doubts of your own salvation. Perhaps doubts about whether or not God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And you know that. And your doubt is whether or not any of this is true at all. Here's what God is calling each of us to. Be honest. Admit your doubts. Seek wisdom in humility and battle against the blindness of unbelief. If you're not a Christian this morning, I am glad you're here and I welcome you to bring your questions. I'd love to sit down with you and try to answer them for you and to help you understand what this is all about. We've tried, and I hope we have created an environment here by God's grace where it's safe to admit our own struggles and sins and our doubts about life and faith and to run hard after the truth together instead of hiding behind familiarity with religious practices. I pray that we will all seek wisdom from God and it will be proven in each of our lives that we delight in the perfect life and sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
non-Christian, I pray that you would know of your great need for our Savior because of your sin. I pray that you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus as your only hope and assurance of anything in this life. And I want to commend him to you as the answer to all of your doubts. He is the answer to your suffering. He is your foundation in uncertainty. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is your only eternal hope. So look to Jesus. Again, the words of William Cooper. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the honesty and the clarity of your word that you've revealed to us the true humanity of people that we look to and admire and even that Jesus has called in John the Baptist the greatest of all men And yet we see in our lives very similar results in many ways. We see our doubts, our misunderstanding, our confusion. That we will have times of darkness and sorrow when we want to ask why, how. When perhaps we might even ask you, God, where you are. And yet, Lord, you've been so kind to reveal to us in your word answers to all of our great doubts. And you have given them to us with grace and mercy. And you reveal answers to us as we seek them as we seek to know wisdom and truth that applies in our lives. And Lord, you don't turn us away. You don't shide us for unbelief. By grace, you gently lead us to the truth. You restore our foundation of hope and assurance. And you rid our lives in time of the darkness of soul. And we're so thankful, Lord, that ultimately our hope 
doesn't rest in our knowing all there is to know. Our hope rests in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We know now that we see dimly, but we know that soon we will be face to face with Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our greatest friend. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who doubt. For Christians who doubt, Lord, that you would humbly lead them to wisdom. To be honest with one another as we seek to find answers together. Lord, for those who are non-Christians this morning, I pray that you would guard them from the blindness of utter unbelief and obstinance that you would give them eyes to see, that you would give them ears to hear, that they would have hearts to understand what is right and true, and that you would dispel their skepticism, you would dispel their doubt, and that they would stand on the solid rock of the truth of your word that proclaims that Jesus is the Christ. He is the fulfillment of all that the Bible has proclaimed he is the way, the truth, and the life. Help us, O Lord, to love him more and to rest in him and to trust in your sovereignty in the midst of all of our circumstances because you are far greater than anything we will experience in this life. Thank you, God. We love you. We praise you. And we are so grateful for your kindness toward us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.